Hello, everyone. Welcome again. This is so great. I'm so happy that you're joining us. I'm Annette Nath. I am the CEO and founder of Nafe Productions. I also was the founder and president of the Event Planners Association for the New York chapter, which is no longer happening, but we did some great things for three years and that's how I met so many amazing people in the industry. Welcome to a turn of events where we take a positive spin on your business. I have an amazing guest here today, Steve Adelman. He's the head of Adelman Law Group and also the vice president of the Event Safety Alliance. We're going to talk a lot about the legal pitfalls of reopening during this crazy time right now and this new abnormal that we're in. So let's welcome Steve Adelman. How are you, Steve? Hey, Annette. I'm fine because I'm enjoying air conditioning here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah, it's really hot there, huh? It's summertime, so yeah, Arizona and hot in the summer, basically the same thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm so happy you're with us today because we have so many things to cover with what's been going on and and making sure that we're keeping our events safe and, and things like that. First of all, why don't you tell everybody about you, where you're from, what you're about, and your background? Sure. So hi, everybody. I'm Steve Edelman. I am uh, head of Edelman Law Group here in Scottsdale and vice president of a group called the Event Safety Alliance. We are an international trade association. We were born in the wake of the um, Indiana State Fair stage roof collapse, where basically a bunch of us wound up in green rooms for conferences in the wake of that disaster. And we basically said, oh, my God, our industry is going to die if people are scared to go to shows. And we're going to do something about that. So we formed a group. We wrote some initial guidance called the Event Safety Guide. And since then, we have taken on various other rather challenging safety and security issues at live events, including most recently the Event Safety Alliance Reopening Guide, uh, which we released in May. So we were one of the very earliest forms of guidance, really pretty detailed, granular guidance about how to reopen live events. And if people had bothered to actually do the things that were not so difficult, detailed, but not hard, if people had managed to take them seriously, this reopening probably would have gone a lot better um, than it has gone. Instead, first to close, last to reopen, and turns out last to reopen is going to be, it's going to be a while. Yeah. Um, and that's very frustrating. Yeah, um, it is. So, speaking of reopening, how will I know when it's safe to reopen? There are a couple of different layers to that. So first, you have to follow whatever is your state law. So in most states, you are just not allowed to reopen. But even as recently as yesterday in New York, there was a directive from, I think, the Board of Alcohol Control. I'm getting their name wrong, but it's the Liquor Authority. Right. And their directive was, if you have music as an incidental part of food and drink service, that establishment can reopen. But if you're selling tickets for the music or performance itself, no, you cannot reopen. Frankly, I think that is hair splitting to a degree that makes no sense. And I would personally be glad to have the opportunity to go toe to toe with somebody and try to figure out what their logic is and explain why it's flawed. But that's the sort of, that's the sort of state level authority that comes first. The first issue is, can you legally reopen? Then we get to Annette, your question, which is an excellent question. Okay, say that you're in a state where the governor always anti-science, like mine, here in Arizona. What then, when you're basically just given the choice, how do you know if it's safe to reopen? There, we have the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, Johns Hopkins University has a really robust website. So all you need is the ability to read and a decent Wi-Fi connection, and you too can learn the answer to this question, but I'll lay it out for you because it's pretty simple. There are three things. I'm holding up three fingers right now, only three. First, 
Social distancing. Yes. Six yes. feet per person. If you prefer the metric system, that's two meters. So six feet of social distancing, non-negotiable. Doesn't matter whether you're wearing face covering, if you think that someone looks like they're okay. No, even if you're in Sturgis, South Dakota, and you've got your motorcycle, six feet, that's still the rule because COVID-19 is a highly infectious disease. So that's number one. Two, face coverings, non-negotiable. Why? Because it turns out that COVID-19 spreads most readily through aerosolized droplets, meaning when you talk like I do, loud from the diaphragm, your <laughs> droplets, your germs go into the air and they can infect somebody else. So wearing a face covering, it's not for me, it's for you, it's for everybody other than me. So that's two. And the third thing is hand washing. Not hard, none of these are hard. Six feet, face covering, hand washing, it's not difficult. And that, that's the answer to your question, what can we do to be safe? Yeah. Social yeah. distancing, face covering, hand washing, period, done. Exclamation point at the end of that, new paragraph. Then the issue is how. Right. And also, we've, I've talked about this before. It is a little inconvenient for the social distancing. You just have to make sure that you have a space big enough that's going to be able to allow for social distancing with the size of group and also within the parameters of what the percentage of people you can have in the space that you're in. So those are things that you have to think about when you're doing an event with social distancing. If my governor allows it, is there still any risk, legal risk for me? Legal risk. I'm going to give you the lawyer's analysis of this. Uh, this is a happy story. So this is a really rare situation when a lawyer is going to tell you about legal risk and it's a good story for you. Gather near. This will be fun. This will make you happy. No, is the answer. Is there legal risk to holding live events if you do the things that you're supposed to do? Basically, the answer is no, there's not. There's not because I, I have to explain the law here. Uh, this will take a couple of minutes. Viewer of this program, if you're the kind of person who when a lawyer is telling you legal things, not charging you and not waving their finger and accusing you of something, if you're the kind of person in that scenario to take a note or two, yeah. Limber, limber up, um, get ready, because it's going to happen for you right now. So here's some law. And this, again, is a good story for you, so you want to understand this. So now I'm going to explain the law of negligence, and then I'm going to apply it to COVID-19. So let's set up the hypothetical. This mini law school. We always deal with hypos. Yes. So the hypothetical is... You, whoever you are watching this, Annette, you're setting up some event and someone comes to your event in New York and they have a fabulous time, but it turns out that they contract COVID-19 at some point within the two-week incubation period of COVID-19 after seeing your event. And let's make it a happy story. They are uncomfortable, but otherwise fine. They recover fully but they're looking for someone to compensate them for their discomfort. Right. So that's the setup. So now they, they want to sue someone for negligence. Okay. Now we transition to Steve, what's the law? Here's the law. Negligence is a tort T O R T. So I'm going to explain to you tort law. This is the law of all 50 states. It's basic common law principles that apply in roughly 80 countries around the world. So you can speak to your friends in many places, and you'll all be talking about the same four elements to a tort that I'm about to tell you. So a tort has four elements, duty, breach, causation, and harm. Okay, I'm going to say it again, then I'm going to apply them. Duty, breach, causation, and harm. It is the plaintiff's burden to prove each of those four elements. Right. The plaintiff right. has the duty to prove each of those four elements by what's called a preponderance of the evidence. Right. When, right. when we reduce that to math, it's 51%. It means more likely than not. 
So that's the lowest bar in the American legal system, as opposed to criminal law, where you have to prove something by clear and convincing evidence, because taking away people's liberty is a big deal. We want people to be sure. In our negligence hypothetical, the plaintiff, the person who contracted COVID-19, has to prove each of the four elements of a tort by a preponderance of the evidence. Now let's apply that to COVID-19. Is there a duty of care for you, Annette, operating an event? Yes, there is. Here's what it is. It is that everyone has a legal duty to behave as a reasonable person under their circumstances. Here the circumstances are you want to host an event during COVID-19 when there is inadequate testing, no contact tracing, and not yet a vaccine. So those are the circumstances. Do you have a duty of care? Yes, you do. It is to maintain premises which are reasonably healthy and safe given those circumstances. What constitute reasonably healthy and safe? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I have three fingers again. What, what did those be for? Oh, that's right. It's for social distancing, face covering, and hand washing. So what's your duty of care? To maintain premises which are reasonably safe during this pandemic by enforcing the three simple things that everybody needs to do. Now, the second element that plaintiff would have to prove is that you breached your duty. Let's set that element aside and we'll come back to it in a minute. The third element, combining the fourth element, the third element that plaintiff would have to prove is that whatever was your breach of the duty that we've already described, that was the proximate cause of their harm. Approximate cause of the third element, harm is the fourth element. Here's why this is a happy story. So finally, we got to the good part. Approximate cause means whatever is the thing that you did wrong was the cause of the resulting harm. The reason you're going to win if there is a lawsuit, which there won't be because plaintiff's lawyers don't spend their money foolishly, it's their money. The reason that you would win in the unlikely event that you would get sued is because of this third element, proximate cause. Why? Because COVID-19 is a sneaky devil. And proving that unlike when somebody went to Dwayne Reed or Safeway or whatever is their supermarket or talked to their neighbor in the elevator or in the lobby getting their mail, or wherever they were during the two-week incubation period after they went to your event, they would have to prove that unlike all those other places, oh no, the only place where they were exposed to COVID-19 and therefore the only place where they got sick was your event. They would have to prove that more likely than not, and they will not be able to prove that. Why? Because first to close, last to reopen, by the time live event spaces are allowed to reopen in states, even including New York, which is doing relatively very well, mm-hmm. by the time you're allowed to reopen, lots of other stuff is open already, which means there will be lots of other places that people are exposed potentially to COVID-19. So you will always win on proximate cause. That's why this is a happy story. Now, let's just circle back to breach because I promised that we would. And this also is a happy part of the story. You will also win on breach, probably, for two reasons. One, you are watching this broadcast, and I've already done the only plug that I'm going to do, which is for the Event Safety Alliance Reopening Guide, which is free. It's a free download, eventsafetyalliance.org. It's a free download for everybody to sign in and you can get a copy and send it to your friends also. And you won't breach your duty to do the three, again, three things that you need to do to operate healthy and safe premises. You won't breach that duty because you will look at our guidance or somebody else's. There's lots of other guidance. Ours came out very early in early May. We got way ahead of the curve. Since then, there have been a lot of other groups that have come out with other guidance. I think some of it's fine, some of it, most of it's not as detailed as ours, but it's all good. So you won't breach because you're listening to this and you've got the fear of God in you and 
you're taking seriously when a lawyer tells you things that you can do to avoid liability. You're going to say, wow, I got some not free legal advice, but free legal information, and I'm going to get some free guidance. Yeah. Where do I type? Yeah. So you won't breach for that reason. And also, again, COVID-19 is a sneaky devil. Even if you do everything right, so even if you, I don't know, buy a $79 you know, thermal scanner and scan people's foreheads before they enter your space, and you have somebody with a clipboard, and they're asking, have you been in contact with anyone known to have COVID-19? Have you suffered any of the signs or symptoms of COVID-19 infection in the last 14 days? Blah, blah, blah. Even if you do all that, which you will, again, because the lawyer is telling you to, and I'm giving you a link to free guidance, even if you do all those things, something approaching 40% of people who actually are infected with COVID-19 will be asymptomatic carriers, meaning they will show no symptoms. Your thermal scan will yield no useful information. The clipboard can be done really diligently and will tell us nothing. And not only does some large number of people, will they be asymptomatic carriers, but even people who ultimately do show symptoms, many of them will be pre-symptomatic. Because it turns out with COVID-19, sneaky devil that it is, they will be most infectious before they show symptoms. So once they finally start to have that loss of taste sensation, temperature, cough, whatever it is that they experience, before they have those symptoms, that's when they'll be most infectious. But you can do all the right stuff, not breach your duty of care, and still have infected people in your venue. So that's a glass which is both half full and half empty. You right. can do all the right stuff, avoid legal liability, which was Annette, your original question, yeah. and still have people who are infected in your venue. You know, that's because we're in a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. It's great, great. Free legal advice. I hope everybody is listening to this. No, it's not giving you legal advice on a webinar. It's legal information, though. Legal information. There you go. There you go. Okay. You mentioned a waiver. Is there a, can I make them sign a waiver? And what happens if they don't sign a waiver? You can ask people to sign a waiver. So the, the reason that it's good, Annette, that you've taken these questions in the order that you have, because Having just explained, let's see, hey, let's do a little Q&A with you and me, Annette. Um, we'll, we'll do this as a multiple choice. How much legal liability, how much legal risk is there for reopening an event? So how much risk of a negligence claim being really costly, like closing your business down, is there? A lot. B, not much at all. You're going to get me here, but I would say not much at all. There you go. So <laughs> congratulations. You just answered the question correctly, which shows that you were listening to my rant of about yeah. six minutes. Yeah, so, yeah. yes, taking as a foundation that there's not much legal concern here. Yeah. Now we can talk about waivers of liability. So let's ask, what does a waiver of liability do? It asks people to waive their right to sue. Why do we care if, even if they sue, which I've already said is exceedingly unlikely, they're going to lose? Why do we need waivers of liability for something that's not likely to happen? What does that do for us that we don't already have? It does scare some people away. It does piss some people off doesn't provide you with a whole lot of legal protection because waivers of liability never do. They don't anyway. Yeah. Waivers of liability are expressly disfavored as a matter of law. Even though we're used to seeing them in tiny font sizes on the back of printed tickets. Remember printed right, tickets? Right. That was a fun thing. Yeah. I used to have. Those were the days. Those were the days. We're <laughs> dating ourselves here. I remember printed tickets. I used to save them. That was fun. I know. Um, I miss. So, I never thought I'd miss lanyards. I I have lots of lanyards, but it's all like, you know show passes and stuff. Um, so waivers of liability are expressly disfavored as a matter of law, and the reason for that is 
waivers of liability are contracts. The whole idea of a contract is that it is freely bargained for the product of what used to be called a meeting of the minds. We don't use that term anymore. But the idea is that both sides can negotiate. We don't take it or leave it propositions. God knows we have a lot of them. You want to bring your personal AR-15 assault rifle on an airplane. Airplane is another thing I vaguely remember. If you wanted to bring one, you can't. They'll say no. Um, that's not something you can negotiate with the airlines. Um, bring your personal flask of alcohol to a catered event where they sell alcohol. No, can't do that either. So there are contracts that are not freely bargained for. But as a matter of law, we don't like them. Judges don't like to enforce them. But really what a waiver of liability has always been used for is notice. It's notice of what a risk is and some form of acknowledgement that the guest or patron or worker, whoever we're talking about, is acknowledging that they have been apprised of the existence of the risk and their representation that to the extent that they understand the risk, they're accepting it. Now, I've given enough caveats in that sentence for you to figure out, does a waiver of liability prevent someone from suing? No, because it's our American legal system. Nothing prevents people from suing. It, it simply slightly changes the odds of whether you will win a lawsuit or not. But really, in the case of COVID-19, the thing that changes the odds of you winning is, one, COVID-19, really hard to prove. Two, you're going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I guess it doesn't hurt to have it, right? No, it can hurt to have it. Oh, it can. Of course it can. So let's say that you, whoever you are watching this, Let's say that your demographic is older people. I'm thinking right now of my parents or my aunt who all love classical music. Um, they're not going to go to an event where they're asked to waive their right to sue because they're going to correctly interpret that request as a lack of confidence by the event organizers they really have managed the risk of reopening during this pandemic. No, my parents and my aunt, they're smart. And they're going to say, we'll just pump the brakes on this and we'll watch from home and maybe listen to a recorded broadcast while this pandemic is going on. So, no, it can hurt. And yeah. frankly, you know, the, the expression, what harm could it do, is really insidious. Yeah. Because the answer is almost always, wait, that's not a rhetorical question. There's an answer to that. Let me think it through and then I'll tell you. So when people you know, ask that question rhetorically, oh, what harm could it do? That's stupid. It's intellectually lazy. Almost <laughs> always, there is a downside risk to everything. There are positives and negatives. Being a lawyer, I like the symbol of the scales of justice weighing pluses and minuses to things. I find that intellectually satisfying because I think that's actually the way the world works. So is there a downside risk to asking people to sign a waiver of liability? Hell yeah. You yes. can get some people to stay home, particularly when they're inclined to take their health and safety more seriously anyway people heedless of the risk. They're, they're like old-fashioned nimbies, not in my backyard. Stupid people going to social media celebrities in the Hollywood Hills, holding parties with no social distancing and no masks. You know, finally, the, you know, the, the municipal officials had to cut their power and water because yeah. you know, these social media idiots, they're in their late teens and early 20s. They think they're bulletproof. But there are a lot of people who don't think that way, and a waiver of liability can drive away business that I don't think anybody can afford to drive away right now. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so I know that you, I'm going to shift here just a teeny bit here. What there's, you have on your website about mass gathering permits. How is that, how was that before, and how has that changed now since COVID? In most parts of the U.S., you can't get one. Right. Okay. So there's no, 
there's nothing that's, is that going to change as we start to get closer to opening up? But right now there's just no, even well, with social distancing, any of that? See, n- now we have to take this international, but we can, because there's a pretty bright line between America's reopening efforts, which I think there are a lot of words for them, most of them negative, some of which are unprintable versus much of the rest of the world where they're managing and they're not being crazy or stupid. But I suspect that most people watching this broadcast saw images from Newcastle, England last week where they did a socially distanced show with 2,500 people on platforms with, with railing around them, maximum of six people. And it worked. It allowed for a 2,500-person outdoor show. People loved it. I don't know if it broke even, but it was a positive experience. Drive-in shows. That's a good idea because it naturally enforces social distancing. It enforces social distancing only if you enforce it. Chain smokers, fans, no, that's not the idea. You let people get out of their cars, then you don't have a drive-in event anymore. That's just crazy. So there are things that can be done, but they have to be done seriously. The whole idea of play is not that it's completely carefree, but that we manage the risks. You know, I was a soccer player for most of my life. I wore shin guards because I didn't want to become disabled by someone kicking me in the shins. It's just managing a risk, a reasonably foreseeable risk. We do that all the time. COVID-19 is not an exception to the way we normally have to think about the world. What about my workers? What can I do? What can I make them do? Anything that's legal. That's actually a relatively easy question. You can condition employment So let's take it both ways. There are two types of relationships between someone who's paying and a worker, either employer-employee or what in law is called master-servant. It's hiring entity and independent contractor. But the rules, my answer is exactly the same. You can condition their employment or their engagement if they're an independent contractor on following your health and safety rules. So again, oh look, three fingers, three things that you can condition their employment on. So you can require people to engage in social distancing to the extent it's possible. Some things won't be possible to do, maintaining six feet, pushing road cases if they're heavy and require two people, unloading trucks, working in in kitchens that are closely spaced, there are some things that don't lend themselves to social distancing. So for them, you want to minimize the time of exposure and minimize the number of instances where you can't social distance. And for those rare instances, you want to make absolutely certain that everybody's wearing face covering and that they are washing their hands and engaging in reasonable sanitary practices And that's what you need to do. And you can make those things a condition of employment. You don't have to give three strikes and you're out. You don't have to do that. You can say on day one when you're doing your toolbox talk or whatever you want to call it, look, we are thrilled to be able to put on an event. Because we know we've been out of work for a long time. We know you have been also. We are ecstatic to finally see people in close proximity again, to be able to do something that's cool and cultural. But we have to be smart about this because we don't want to get sick ourselves. We don't want you to get sick. And we all know people. We have families and friends that we don't want to get sick. We don't want to get our patrons or guests sick either. So... There's a zero tolerance policy here. If you can't manage to observe our things, you're out. So what does the law allow me to do if they refuse to wear a mask? 
fire them. <laughs> That's it. Literally fire their ass. Get them out. They're a menace. They're a menace because they're ignorant. Yeah. Seriously. That's what you do. Yeah. And that's the back of house answer. For front of house, if you have guests who, for whatever reason, think that there is some liberty interest in them right. violating your rules, so here's more law for you. The term for that liberty interest that people were proclaiming about not wearing a face covering, the legal term for that is wrong. It's wrong. That's just not a thing. Uh, there are pocket copies of the U.S. Constitution. You can probably download a copy if you want to have your own or just look it up online. You will look in vain for this, the source of this liberty interest. It's not something that the founders contemplated, and it's not an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. There is no state law that, that says that you don't have to wear a face covering. That's not a thing. So, to apply the law as it actually exists, as opposed to some bullshit liberty interest that doesn't exist, the remedy, if somebody chooses not to follow your rules, is the same as the remedy if they choose not to follow any other rule. No shoes, no shirt, no service. Really, what that means is you're out. Right, um, right. Somebody comes in bare-chested, you send them out the door because they are no longer a business invitee, there's a legal term for you, um, when they don't follow the rules of your event or your venue, they their legal status magically changes. This is a really cool thing about the law. Their legal status magically changes when they stop following your rules from business invitee to now they are a, oh, you're going to like this because you're going to recognize it, they become a trespasser. And we all know what you do with a trespasser. Right. You trespass them off the property. Right. Right. You throw them out. That's what you do with trespassers. That's why we know the term to trespass someone. So that's what you do with non-compliant guests. You trespass them off the property. They have forfeited their right to be there. Great stuff. And if you guys have any questions, please put them in the chat. We'd love to get any of your questions. So is COVID-19 a force majeure event? And why don't you tell everyone what force majeure is so everyone is clear? Oh, force majeure. Force majeure is one of the provisions that lurks in the boilerplate, in the miscellaneous sections at the end of contracts. You probably never read it until March, if you've even looked at it now. Force majeure is French, though it is actually pronounced force majeure. Uh, force majeure means higher force. Americanized, it is what we typically refer to as an act of God. I find that a distinctly unhelpful formulation. I'm Jewish. My God is not the same as, I don't know, whoever you are, omnipotent and omniscient and benevolent. Yeah, that may not be your God. So an act of God is not a meaningful legal term. So force majeure in its legal context is comprised of two elements. Lots of things in the law have multiple elements. I keep showing three fingers because I want you to focus on that. But force majeure has two elements. They are, one, something bad happened that isn't the fault of either contracting party. So that's element number one. That's the easy part. The harder part is... The bad thing that happened that isn't either party's fault renders performance under whatever contract we're talking about either completely impossible, that's easy, or, here's the hard part, commercially impracticable. That's a real word, impracticable. And impracticable, which is really the essence of force majeure provisions, what it boils down to is another legal concept called frustration of purpose. So let me explain that. So just take a minute. Okay. And the context for all this is force majeure provisions are really not very important in the context of COVID-19. 
they got a lot of press for reasons that turned out not to be very meaningful. So I, I'm answering your question because I want you to understand, but the end game here is force majeure is not going to help you in the context of COVID-19. So just so that you can finish the thought, the whole point of a force majeure provision is it is identifying bad things that happened that weren't either party's fault that frustrate the purpose of the contract that you formed in the first place. Right. So for example, the most typical reason for force majeure provisions is severe weather, mostly during outdoor events. You, you know, gentle viewer, you're probably used to the typical language in force majeure provisions. It's this parade of horribles, fire, flood, severe storms, civil insurrection, which always makes me picture like New Englanders with tricorn hats and muskets. Um, turns out civil insurrection is a thing. This summer we've experienced it. Severe weather, that's a thing. Again, the Event Safety Alliance was born from a you know severe wind gust. Right. Um, disease, pandemic. We're actually living through two force majeure events right now, more or less simultaneously, between the COVID-19 pandemic and the civil unrest in some cities. Both of those can render performance of a, a an event contract commercially impracticable. You could theoretically open your doors to an event, but if no one feels safe in coming, there's no point. There's no point in ordering the food. There's no point in contracting for security. There's no point in decorating the premises in anticipation of a crowd that isn't going to come. It would frustrate the purpose of the contract for you to perform, so you don't. That's what force majeure is about. So... Do you need to, because now everybody's adding pandemic, the word pandemic to their force majeure. All of my clients want to make sure that they're covered under this. Yeah, they're not. They're not, right? They're not. It doesn't work. Can you explain that? Yes. Briefly. Uh, I got so many good questions, but like briefly explain that. Yeah, you've already figured out I don't explain things too briefly. (laughs) Um, Sorry about that. The, the law doesn't lend itself to really quick explanation. Oh, I know, but it's really good. This is awesome. So, yeah. Briefly, it's more a question of insurance, and you won't be able to buy pandemic coverage for at least the next five years. Yeah. So whatever you, whatever you say in your contract, you're really just setting yourself up for failure because even if in the unlikely event that you have infectious disease coverage that theoretically would address COVID-19, it turns out that all infectious disease insurance coverage resides in your property damage policy and the insurance companies in lockstep uniformly have taken the position, I believe correctly, it doesn't give me any pleasure to say that, but I think they're right. They've all taken the position that COVID-19 does not cause physical damage to property and that's what's necessary to trigger property damage insurance coverage and it doesn't really matter what you have in your contract, doesn't yield any benefit because no one has insurance coverage for COVID-19. You right, don't have right. it now, you won't have it in the future because you won't be able to buy it anyway. Right. So that's right, the short right. answer. Okay, good. So, okay, should I curl up in a fetal position and wait until there's a vaccine? <laughs> that's what I feel like doing right now. Okay. No, you, you shouldn't. But you have to look overseas to see why. Yeah. Because if you look domestically, you're going to see things like the chain smoker show on Long Island and 250,000 people congregating in Sturgis, South Dakota, and people doing dumb stuff. And that will make you want to be a bear in winter and curl up in the fetal position. So you can't do that. Look overseas where they're being smarter. I'm not putting Europe on a pedestal. They do dumb stuff too, but they have managed to put on events that have worked from a health and safety standpoint more often than we have here in the States. And why do you think that is? Do you really want to go down this road? Briefly. (laughs) Because we all, it's the human condition to look to leaders for leadership. Yeah. The U.S., our leaders, 
have been anti-science since this happened, and that has led people who look, who look for easy answers to find them in insupportable anti-science positions with the very obviously foreseeable outcome that we have taken a situation that could have been not so terrible, and we have made it just about as bad as humanly possible. Yeah. And as I sit here right now in Arizona, I am living in the state that I joke we should change our license plates from the Grand Canyon state to the cautionary tale. Because <laughs> if social distancing and heat were both things that were important, we have more of that than nearly anyone else. We still have been number one on the leaderboard in terms of rate of infection, rate of death hospital beds filled up. We've done everything wrong in this state. You know, I've a microcosm of things that have been done wrong in much of the United States. That's too bad. It is too bad. It's incredibly frustrating. Yeah. So if I seem a little agitated about some of these things and use the word stupid or idiot, you know, <laughs> more freely than you think that actually cerebral and well thought of, I'm very, you know, a, a thoughtful person. But if I seem a little out of sorts, that's why. Because I have to look no farther than outside my own door to see people behaving as if this couldn't possibly affect them. And it can, and it is, and it does. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. It's definitely wearing on you after a while. Okay, so we got some great questions that came in prior to this. Should businesses invest in the costly temperature checking device you mentioned earlier no to use when entering an event no, no. okay <laughs> no because this is an interim period it's the right. new abnormal it's gonna end god willing it will end soon don't i'm a lawyer don't ask me for medical conjecture right but sometime in the relatively near future we're not going to need all this stuff and as i mentioned before a significant minority of people will be asymptomatic carriers or pre-symptomatic carriers, which means investing in temperature checking technology, if it's expensive, yeah, it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. All right. Suzanne asks, who should handle ejections of belligerent patrons? Ah, good question, Suzanne. The answer <laughs> is, let's do it by elimination. Your volunteer ushers? No, not them. Um, no. Your, your very youthful ticket takers? Nope, not them either. They don't have the gravitas um, or the maturity. And you don't want to put them in harm's way. They're kids. Your security guards, bing, 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 yes, because they've got training. Ideally, your larger or more sturdy-looking security professionals. Yeah. Why? Because... This is serious. There are people who are doing really bad, dangerous things when confronted with their own nonsensical liberty interest and the idea that they're going to be trespassed off the property. We all have seen it. It's not just the funny videos of Karens and Trader Joe's and other places. Those are humorous, pathetic, but humorous. People are doing dangerous stuff. And you don't want to put an important security function in the hands of people who didn't sign up for that. So security, off-duty law enforcement, those are the people who should be handling it. And um, if you don't know, if you don't have security or law enforcement at your event, would it be the event producer? Yeah. It, yeah. It's whoever is the most grown-up person in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seriously. Yeah, no. you know, where the buck stops, that's who should be confronting belligerent, non-compliant trespassers. Call them by the right name. They're trespassers. Okay, got it. All right, so Dave says, the Event Safety Alliance reopening guide, which we talked about, recommends using an infection mitigation coordinator. Does Dave, that good for you. Good reading. Yes, in fact, does that mean businesses need to hire a doctor to stand outside taking everyone's temperature? No. We sort of already talked about the temperature thing, but... Address the infection mitigation coordinator. Sure. So the infection mitigation coordinator, sorry about the ungainly title. Uh, we had several doctors who were working with us on writing our guidance. And Dave, because you've got a copy of the reopening guide already, we had 
more than 300 contributors, including several physicians. They basically had a, a bloody throwdown about the title, the name for that position. And ultimately, the winner, the strongest of the strong doctors, came up with infection mitigation coordinator. It's a good, accurate title, even if it's unwieldy. And it betrays the answer to your question, Dave. It's an infection mitigation person. No one's going to eliminate the infection. And the coordinator means, no, you don't have to have a doctor standing outside your door. Who can afford that? It has to be that you have a physician who is looking over your health and safety plan before you plan to reopen to say, are your health and safety measures reasonable for a pandemic where we don't have enough testing, no contact tracing, and no vaccine? Mm -hmm. That's what your infection mitigation coordinator needs to do, is to help you craft a health procedure that then anyone can follow. You don't need a, a surgeon to take someone's temperature or ask them a few questions. And you particularly don't need a surgeon to do that when we all need to acknowledge that the procedure is kind of like Swiss cheese. Now, Swiss cheese is not a bad thing. It's still better than no cheese, but <laughs> there are holes in it. So do you want to do something to stop the people who are openly infectious and, and symptomatic at that point? Yes. Yes, you do. But does that require an ER doc? No, it doesn't. Okay. All right, great. So Mark says, the reopening guide was released on May 11, which feels like a lifetime ago. It sure does. It is full of really detailed, usable advice for businesses. What went wrong? Yeah. Lake of the Ozarks went wrong. Old Town Scottsdale went wrong. Sturgis, South Dakota, Chainsmokers show, country music shows in a former penitentiary in Tennessee outside of Nashville. All those things went wrong. It turns out that Americans are willfully ignorant. Uh, <laughs> and that's Americans from our everyday Americans, a term I don't particularly care for, to our leaders. Too many people being willfully ignorant can spoil even a really good plan. And that's what has happened. Okay. And my last question, if anybody has questions, get them in now because we're almost to the end here. Alyssa says, is robust cancellation language in my contracts a better way to protect my business? Yes. <laughs> it, it is. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd give you one succinct answer. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Particularly since force majeure language you know, which is standard stuff, turns out to be pretty much useless. Yeah. Uh, really what you want is you want your cancellation provision in your contract to give you some means of getting a deposit or retainer. So as soon as you contract for the job, you get some money in hand because you need that. We're all suffering from severe cash flow problems. So you need some money, and it's not going to be no harm, no foul if you get an engagement and then have to cancel it because your state shuts down again. You need some means of either keeping that or rescheduling the events so that you have a good reason to keep it. That's all a matter of contract. You can agree to anything in a contract so long as it's legal wherever you're located, which means Contract language is really important now. Contract language can ensure your cash flow, which yeah. will keep your yeah. doors, not your doors open, your doors are probably closed, but it will keep your business alive yeah. since it turns out the Paycheck Protection Program is a bust in that regard, at least for our industry. So you need to engage in self-help and contracts are the best kind of self-help. Yeah. Our doors are not closed as we're helping lots of people with virtual events. So if anyone has any questions about how to take your live event to a virtual event, happy to talk to you about it. Mr. Adelman, this has been fantastic. So much great information. Thank you so much for taking the time. We've put in the chat how to reach Stephen. And please, I'm sure you're happy for people to reach out. You've been so gracious with us. And, sure. and this, I think it's really important. And again, 
go to the Event Safety Alliance reopening guide that's on the website at eventsafetyalliance.org and grab a copy and send it to all your friends. And if you want to be a member, it's really great. So why don't you talk a little bit about the membership and what the guy know it's like super cheap right now or inexpensive, I should say, right? No, cheap is the word. Um, <laughs> yeah. ESA membership, I think it used to be like $100 a year, which was not a heavy lift anyway. Yeah, still, um, yeah. But we've made it even cheaper. It's now like $25 a year or something insane like that. We dropped it because of the pandemic. Frankly, we just wanted to make safety guidance so accessible that no one could say, this is too expensive for me to figure out what I should do during a pandemic. So we dropped our annual dues to virtually nothing. And the reopening guide is free. Incidentally, if English is not your first language, we've already taken care of that. It's been translated into I think eight or nine languages already um, with more on the way. Yeah, which is really cool. I can't read any of them, but uh, <laughs> read a little of the French. Um, but it's really neat to see stuff that we wrote in different languages trying to make it accessible around the world. Right. Because actually it is being used around the world right now. So even if Americans are making a mess of reopening, in other parts of the world they're not, and we're pretty, pretty pleased that our guidance is helping other countries do what, unfortunately, we in the States seem to be having real trouble with. We're um, such rebels, aren't we? <laughs> not a blessing. <laughs> I know. Well, that's great. And I also know that there's a course or I, I mentioned this earlier to you about the event safety Alliance course or what's it, what is that? Yeah. So it's oh, Jody it's, Katzman's on here and she took it. She said it was great. Yeah. So thank you, Jody. Yeah. Um, so it's the event safety access training, what we call ESAT. And it's a full day course. It's the event version of OSHA 10. Okay. Um, so if you're familiar with OSHA 10 training, that it's very general, it covers most of the construction industry, is expressly designed for events. So we tailor, we use OSHA 10 as a starting place, but then we tailor it for our industry. So we think it's probably more useful for people who work in live events, although OSHA 10 is still important. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's different. Okay, great. So you can find that on the website as well, right? Yep. EventSafetyAlliance.org. .org. Stephen, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything that you've done for us to help our industry and keep us all safe and all the attendees. And it's just been great doing this. And thanks again. Oh, thank you. Appreciate okay. the time. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Join us again next week. Take care.